when we first started to read market in Singapore, you would never thought of, you know, people are like so pure. They just want to stay in Singapore, you know, just only want to do shopping centre reads. So all the all the early reads are pure reads, like pure shopping centre, pure office. But you can see it's no longer pure anymore. <laughs> You're listening to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast, the show where personal finance is about the person, not just the numbers. Here on BFF, we talk about how to make money your best friend so that you can have the freedom to make the most out of life. We go through the honest discussions about money so that you don't need to make the same mistakes. We demystify jargon so that no one can smoke you with complicated acronyms. After all, money's greatest value is to give us control over our time, which is truly our greatest asset. I'm your host, Junus Yu. Hi everyone and welcome back to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast. So our topic today is about how best to analyze and pick REITs. And we have a really good person to talk to today on that topic. We have Cecilia Tan, the CEO of Sassia REIT. Welcome Cecilia. Thanks, thanks Jonas uh, for the invitation. The first time I'm doing the podcast, so I'm a little bit nervous. Actually, I started my career as an investment banker. Mm. Sort of, I think that really built the foundation for what I'm doing today. So close to about 10 years and as an investment banker, I decided that in life should be different. And so I switched to become sort of going into real estate buy side, really into sort of real estate, uh, fund management, private equity and direct investment. And sort of like that, that span is actually the dominant part of my career. After September 11, I must say banking went through a really tough time. And that was the time that I got on myself and sort of did a lot of reflection. Really, what do I want to do? I'm like in the mid-30s and I'm thinking for the rest of like another 20 years, 30 years, hopefully, if I'm still able to. Uh, I want to build something a little bit more lasting, more sustainable. And that's where I decided that I should then go and do something that I can build, create value and impact, you know, uh, the people and also the environment in terms of what I do. Yeah. Mm, I love that. Before we go into the discussion proper, at least we should start with a disclaimer. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks. Today, actually, I'm coming here more in a personal capacity. But of course, because of the subject nature of the REITs, and which is something very close to my heart, and also in my current role at the, as the CEO of Cesarit, um, no doubt I'll be drawing a lot of references uh, in relation to the data points of Cesarit. So I, I think it's important I make this disclaimer that in whatever references to Cesarit, it is not meant to be an uh, offer or invitation or to buy the securities, you know, because we're regulated. So I just want to make sure that for compliance reasons, this is made clear to whoever is listening in. So I guess for most of our listeners, I mean, we all know that REITs have traditionally been viewed as, you know, a more defensive option compared to stocks. And the requirement to distribute at least like 90% of taxable income annually is actually attractive to a lot of retail investors, at least for those in Singapore who are looking to receive regular investment return. You know, today I wanted to drum right into it, right, and ask you like, what should investors be looking out for when they're analysing REITs? I think by now, when I first started the REIT journey, clearly everybody is very confused about REIT. Is it an equity, like the ordinary stock, or is it like a bond that pays you fixed income? And I would say it actually has the characteristics of both by virtue of the fact that you mentioned one of those things that really differentiate REITs from the others, like ordinary securities, is that there is this requirement to pay a very high cash flow out to unit holders. In fact, in Singapore, the requirement is 90% in order for the REIT to enjoy what they call tax transparency. Now, because of this, uh, so the dividend profile of REITs tend to be much higher than, say, an ordinary company. Now, I think to put it in context, uh, of course, I believe a lot of our listeners are probably quite familiar, but for those who are not so, just sort of simply put 
uh, a REIT is actually not a company structure. So a REIT in Singapore is constituted what we call under the Collective Investment Trust. And the thing for REITs in Singapore, because it's real estate investment trust, so the underlying has to be some form of hard assets. Real estate, be it, you know, offices, logistics, e-commerce, uh, hotels, right? Of course, you know, accessory that we are managing are very unique. We own uh, outlets in China, which is non-existent in Singapore. So when we look at the REITs, the first thing people would be looking at because of the nature of the REIT to provide high returns, they'll be looking at, okay, how much income this REIT can give me on a regular basis basis. And most recent Singapore, when we first started, was on a quarterly basis, but we have since pivoted. Most of it have gone towards a half yearly. People look at distribution per unit. So it's not like dividend per unit. And I think it's good to technically qualify this. Distribution means they're paying out of cash flows. Now, ordinary company will pay out of accounting profits. That's why it's called dividend. So because of this, people will be measuring, okay, if every time this unit were to frank out one, say one dollar, to me. Uh, how much am I willing to pay for that? And that is also a function of how much you think you're comfortable with, with the rate of return you're going to get from this particular rate. And I think it's not an easy assessment per se. And I think you have to look at quite a few factors. The first thing is really the strength and the fundamentals of this asset class, whether you're comfortable with this asset class. Do you think this asset class can produce long-term regular returns to you? And also, who is the sponsor behind this REIT? For REITs, it's very interesting. Sponsor, if you look at the listing guidelines, there's no legal definition, but it came out of a market practice because, you know, somebody got to give uh, birth to the REIT and somebody got to stand behind the REIT and, you know, sort of like help the REIT to get started and grow over time. And manage it. Yeah, usually the manager is a related party or related company of the sponsor, right? So it's like the end-to-end ecosystem. So you have to look at the sponsor and, of course, in Singapore, we have all the large REITs. They are all, you know, well-capitalized listed sponsors like Capital Land, Capital Land, Fraser's uh, group. But gradually, you will see, uh, more recently, we have a lot of overseas REITs like Cesar REIT where sponsors could be of different profiles and like, you know, the sponsor that we have in China is unlisted. So if you look at generally, uh, right now, the general market REITs are trading at about 6%. Now, you've got to ask yourself as an investor, is that enough for you, right? So if you think 6% is not enough, then you would be looking to try to buy those REITs that offer you above 6%. Well, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it because the other thing is a lot of investors got to consider the risk of investing in the REIT. Yes, I want to talk about that because people, you know, when you're looking at REITs of a high DPU yield, right, initially it might seem attractive, but then there's also the corresponding like risk-reward risk kind of equation that comes to it. Yeah. So DPU yield, lots of break it down, right, mathematically. So we are talking about, you know, this distribution per unit over the price. Now, so high yield could happen in two situations mainly. It's one where, you know, if the price is stable, but you have the DPU growing, right? Mathematically, you're going to get a high yield. So I think that is a good type of high yield because, you know, it, it shows that the underlying assets are able to produce superior returns over time. And the other situation is where, you know, the DPU is probably quite flattish, but the not growing, price but the price keeps dropping, right? Yep. And so in that kind of situation, that kind of high yield prima facie looks attractive, but I think it's, it calls for a deeper analysis of what drives those high yield. So I think at the end of the day, the high yield in itself is attractive, but I think investors need to look deeper into what are the key drivers behind those, which is why sometimes high yield can be a value trap. And the undiscerning investors may think that, wow, if this street is paying me, say, in excess of 10%, 
Uh, then the question is, do you think this REIT can continue to pay you 10% in the long term? Because that is a very high bar for any REIT to deliver on a sustained basis. How would one actually look to analyze like, because they can drive into what is, you know, making that the DPOU higher and then they realize that, okay, the price is actually going down. What should they be thinking about or what should be they be looking at when price is going down for that REIT? Yeah, okay. So you see, if you look at trading UDP over price, the, the one thing that the manager can control is DPU. What the manager cannot control is price. And price, I, I must say, is a confluence of many, many factors, so right? So many, yes. It could be REIT-specific factors that could drive the price up or down by certain corporate actions done by the REIT, positive or negative. Or it could be due to macro environment or even simple things like investor sentiments that could drive the price down that may not directly reflective of the strength or weakness of that REIT. So I think to put it in perspective, you have to ask yourself that, for example, right now, Singapore REITs in general, because Singapore now enjoy this reopening theme. So you can find that those REITs that the prices were so low during the 2020 and 2021 are becoming the, the rise up, particularly the hospitality mm -hmm. REITs. Mm -hmm. Right. This face right now, you can see I have sort of looked at some data like, you know, for ourselves, accessory in China and some of the overseas, right, particularly the, in the US or even the Japan, where, you know, now we're, our, our currency are facing a lot of tremendous pressure. And also with the interest rate high, there's a lot of perceived risk in all these overseas assets. And you find that the share price is now under a lot of pressure. So this is where I maybe, you know, sort of like a little bit of education for investors. If you look at our DPU for accessory in 2020 versus 2019. Now, China is very interesting, right? China is still very much in the thick of COVID because of the insistence of whatever they call it, dynamic COVID, zero, uh, zero COVID strategy, right? But basically the rest of the world is saying, okay, forget about COVID, we're going to live with it, right? So in the thick of COVID 2020 versus 2019, actually our DPU was still up against 2019. So I think that is staggering because I was just looking at the comparable of a Singapore REIT without naming one. That period, the DP was down 25%. But our share price didn't go as much as well. So I think it's, it's, it's still a function that people are still generally very concerned about some of these overseas REITs. And of course, in 2021 versus 2020, our DPU actually went up by 8.5%. But again, the share price didn't rise as much. Of course, now we are sort of in very sort of more difficult environment. But still, for the first half of this year, we have still delivered a positive DPU growth of 1.1% for the six months. But yet, our share price went down. So if you take that in perspective, we have a situation of a growing DPU, but yet the share price is still not quite reflective of the strength of the DPU. I think that really lies the fact that the price can be affected very sensitive, actually a lot more by macro factors. Got it. And I think that's where investor relations actually plays a very key role, right? In helping retail investors actually understand what the what market environment is like, what the future plans of the company is like, and, you know, kind of explaining, like, let's say if DPU is increasing, you know, what, what were the, the tailwinds that were helping this along? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the last time we talked about this was also how does a retail investor sort of think about forex risk, especially, you know, in Cesare's case where the assets are based in China, the theme is, you know, outlet, outlet shopping malls and, you know, targeting the, you know, emerging middle class. How should they be thinking about forex risk in this regard? 
Okay, in, in a way, we are quite fortunate we are only dealing with one single currency, <laughs> currency right? Yes. Because some of the REITs, are, they have gone to different markets, they, they will have to deal with a basket of different currencies. Mm. So I think with, with anything uh, overseas, we look at sort of the risk dimension of that. Now, because like for Cesare, we are paying in Singapore dollars, but our underlying income is renminbi. So clearly, so if renminbi is strengthening, uh, that's a good thing, right? So when we convert back to Singapore dollars, I can distribute more. But the converse will be through when renminbi is weakening. So I think when it comes to FX, we take, a, I would say, using the word of China, dynamic approach. Because uh, I think a lot of the currency is also shaped a lot by international geopolitical factors and macro and also interest rate differential between the currencies. So clearly, US dollar is in a strong position vis-a-vis -vis all the Asian currencies. But you see, uh, now renminbi is facing some weakness. But actually, two years ago, renminbi is strengthening. So we have a happy problem. So when we were in that position, we actually didn't want to hedge renminbi too much because if we know the trend is going up, then by hedging too much, you're actually already capping the gains that could arise from the currency. But that's not to say we don't hedge at all. So I think we have to take a measured approach. But currently right now, we already know the renminbi is weakening. So we, we, we are taking a bit more proactive approach in hedging the exposure to minimize the volatility. But I don't think anyone will be able to eradicate all the FX risks because there is a cost to hedging at the end of it. So let's say, I mean, just a, just a question, let's say because the Japanese yen is also weak right now against the Singapore dollar, right? So let's say if you're managing a REIT where the assets are based in Japan, what would be your approach to sort of hedging that risk? Yeah, so the usual instruments that we look at will be a cross-currency swap. But the thing is this, when you want to hedge a, a currency that everybody knows is going, <laughs> is weakening, you know the banks is going to price that in. So you, you need to sort of take a view of, you know, if how much to what extent are you prepared to be able to uh, price in that that hedging costs because yeah you, you need the protection surely and then you need to figure out from your financial uh, sensitivity where is that equilibrium because if you hedge total yeah you have protection but at the end it may still be very expensive and vis-a-vis -vis maybe leaving a portion of it unhedged and currently I think you hedge around 50% of distributable income right yeah so I think that's something that we are monitoring whether we're going to try to sort of increase that and I said we have to take a dynamic approach I mean currently right now where the factors are clearly is you know the US dollar is against all the same, uh, Asian currencies not just the B. If BOJ has, for the first time in 24 years, intervened in the market, <laughs> you know. So clearly, you know, uh, all the Asian currencies are now under so, a lot of pressure. As far as Sing dollars with renminbi, right, because Singapore doesn't use interest rate, we use currency. So I think in a way that dimension vis-a-vis renminbi, we are probably a lot easier to manage. We just look at the FX without considering the, the interest rate portion, but because that, that should be fine for us. Got it. And also going on to another ratio that people often throw around when looking at uh, REITs, right, which is price and net asset value. What should people dig deeper into when they look into that? First thing first is why is price to net asset value uh, relevant for REIT? Okay, because people talk about net asset value mainly for, you know, assets heavy. And you tend to uh, ascribe that to developers. So when people look at developers' pricing, they will say, okay, what's the discount to RNAV? Okay, so in a sense, from a REIT perspective, because the underlying are hard assets, price to NAV is something like an investor could think about what is the intrinsic value set, which means if, if today is this, if this REIT were to sell all its assets, right, can it get back what it priced in, in its accounts, mm, mm. in its books? So, like, price the book. Yes, correct. That concept. Okay, and that is actually for investors to know, okay, if, if today everything else is being equal, right? If today this price to book, say, is $1.10, but the market is actually looking at this at, say, $1.00, then you will be asking yourself, okay, is that discount? 
you feel justifiable or not. Because that discount, I think, also reflects investors' perception of where the real value of the assets will be. You see, for REITs, we do valuation once a year. But along the way, sometimes things, uh, the REIT can undertake certain actions that may increase or decrease the value of the assets. So that's where the market will try to adjust itself in terms of what it perceives as the intrinsic or true value of that portfolio of assets. So in a way, when you look at the REITs, which is why people look at DPU as, you know, sort of like the recurring return, and price to NAV as, you know, if one day, you know, this rate were to be able to realise what is the true value that I can get back, like my capital plus whatever, built-in profit in that is already reflected in the valuation of the assets. It's very value-oriented kind of yes, metric. Yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got it, got it. And what other metrics should retail investors look at? I think these two metrics, okay, the other thing is total returns concept, yeah. So let me come to that. It's a little bit technical. But you see, uh, so this is the part where REITs is a little bit interesting. Now, if you look at a, a traditional uh, bond product, the bond theoretically shouldn't fluctuate in price. Uh, because it pays you a fixed coupon. And the ordinary stock, they will fluctuate in price because it's equity. Now, for risk, interestingly, while we pay you a high distribution, it's not guaranteed. So that part is not like a fixed income bond. But we also behave like a stock in the ordinary sense that because, you know, subject to supply and demand, people buy and sell in the marketplace. And also if, let's say, the REIT is, has a lot of growth prospects, you'll find that a lot of people want to buy this REIT. So generally, the price will go up say, relative to demand. And then what you can get is your regular dividend. So you get 5%. But if this rate has performed really well over a year, it gained 5% from beginning of the year to the end. So in total, you get 10% returns. So I think that's something that investors also need to sort of consider whether that REIT would be able to give you a total return. So the pop is actually in the price of the REIT apart from the regular income. Got it. And and based on your experience in the last two decades, when a REIT announces an, you know, an acquisition, how does it usually affect stock price? Okay, I, price? Yeah, so I, I think this market, right, they're obsessed with you. Mm. Oh. So mm. uh, every time uh, a REIT announces an acquisition, the default premise is that it must be EU creative and, and let me just explain this a little bit I, I think EU creative has to be understood in the context that uh, when we come to the DPU I'll rather, rather say it's EU creative I'll say it's DPU creative because as, as we earlier talked on EU right is also a function of price so putting price aside I think for example if this current portfolio produces to you a DPU say of $10 you were to buy a new asset and the new asset needs to be funded so new assets will have its own cost of capital, whether is it in a form of debt or equity. And net-net, it can still give you an extra $1. So combined together, you get $11. Theoretically, then that is actually a good acquisition. Yes, accretive. Yeah. Mm. yeah. But beyond that, I think the, the way to look at this is also, okay, you have this $11 now, but this $11 will become 12 13 14 15 in the future and that's where I think the REIT manager will need to be able to articulate a, a, a good strategy around why it is looking to buy that asset and not just to expand the portfolio for the sake So it's certainly not enough to be for it to be sustainable, for it to just remain at $11, but that yeah. operating leverage story needs to play out and Correct. deliver that beyond 12 kind yeah. of yeah. number, right? Yeah. Mm. yeah, exactly. And sometimes we go into different markets for diversification purposes to get access to, say, different tenant base. You can see some REITs have also gone into multi-asset class. When we first started the REIT market in Singapore, you would never thought of, you know, people are like so pure. They just want to stay in Singapore. You know, just only want to do shopping centre. So all the all the early REITs are pure REITs, like 
pure shopping center, pure office, but you can see it's no longer pure anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not because even as a regular consumer, every time we look at a new property, right, it's always like a mixed use yeah. kind of property, right? You have residential, you have commercial, you have you know like the shop, you know the shops at the bottom. So you can't really look at a single property and say that okay, this is only zoned for yeah. residential yeah. because it's a really yeah. a mix. I, and, and I think this is the beautiful part about real estate, right? Actually, it's, it is what you can imagine it to be. And I think there's a cause for the skill set of the REIT manager. If they want to go beyond a certain asset class, you know, they would need to sort of resource themselves, hiring external people, or maybe go into some form of a joint venture partnership with people that can bring for you that uh, skill set to deliver different asset classes. Because different asset classes demand different skill sets in, in the management of the, the asset itself. Uh, and so as a tenant mix. Got it. And sort of to end of today's session, what are the top three things that you would get REIT investors to look out for whenever they are analysing a REIT, be it local or overseas? I think it's what you're looking for in a REIT. Are you sort of looking at this as just pure income or you are looking at this also with a bit of, you know, I would like to sort of be a bit more adventurous and prepared to take a bit of risk with some of these REITs. Because as Right now, we have like 40 over REITs. They are of different spectrum. So I would say for investors who have never invested in REITs, I mean, you go with whatever you feel comfortable. And generally, that will be the names that you feel familiar with because uh, I think that will give you a bit of the hand-holding. That familiarity. Bit. Yeah, familiarity. And then once you get a bit more, you'll be able to go up what I call the risk curve. And then, you know, you'll be able to come and look at sort of the other more interesting REITs with more overseas assets. Yeah, so, but I will also say that don't be so naive to believe that just because you buy, uh, say, a, a very stable REIT or very established REIT, the price of the REIT will not drop. Uh, for any investor, you know, with any investment, once, so long as it's listed, right, you have to be prepared that will be some volatility. But the good news is, I think, risks are generally meant to be so low risk. I would say no risk. Huh? It's low risk, just like no crime doesn't mean uh, low crime doesn't mean no crime, right? Yes. Yeah. So uh, you must be prepared to still accept some level of volatility. But uh, I've seen that risks tend to trade in a uh, tighter range. Mm -hmm. I think clearly that uh, is reflective of the risk profile of the risk. Mm -hmm. The other thing I, I should also mention about, you know, uh, the gearing, the leverage, mm. financial risk, uh, right? So I think that's something we, we, we should also highlight because... The level of borrowings, basically. Yes. In Singapore, right, uh, because REITs are meant to be uh, low-risk vehicles, so mm. MAS actually uh, put a, a gearing limit on REITs. In mm. fact, it's 45%. But uh, if those REITs with good interest coverage of about 2.5 times and above, mm -hmm. they can gear all the way up to 50%. So it's like, you know, a good boy, you, you, you get 50%. Mm. Uh, not so good. Okay, sorry, you have to stay at 45%. Mm. So when investors look at the REIT, in terms of the, uh, the yield profile, they have to also look at the gearing. Whether is the REIT already geared so high, such that, you know, uh, meaning to say the financial risk is going to be much higher when interest rates start to rise and also that means it could mean the REIT may be inhibited by so making acquisitions through using a cheaper form of debt right mm. Yeah, mm. Uh, the, the cost of debt will be cheaper for debt but because if it's gearing already so much it has uh, much limited options but to go towards equity and then there will be form of dilution depending on how much the REIT needs to raise in the public market so I think gearing is also a factor that investors need to keep an eye on so uh, I will, I'm very proud to say accessory we are very very lowly geared so given the high DPU profile that we have a very lowly geared I see that you know I would say accessory is one of the one of the rare ones has it always uh, been this way has it always been the approach yeah I, I think from from the beginning we have always been very conscientious of trying to keep the financial leverage to as 
low as what we feel is appropriate for the REIT. Because it's also cognizant that we are operating in China where you know the environment tends to be a bit more volatile and unpredictable as what has happened with the COVID. And also we wanted to uh, make sure that the REIT is able to respond to any sort of like unforeseen circumstances if you know the financial risk is being stretched. Right, so in this case, when we are facing uh, high interest rate environments, you know, uh, but the good thing for China, right, they are going the other way around. They are actually dropping interest rates. So in a way, you know, we are a beneficiary of that as well. Got it. And okay, so I think today we actually covered a lot of good ground on REITs and I think it's a really good primer. For listeners who want to find out more about you and the good work that you're doing in the REIT space, where can they find you? Oh, okay. I'm very active in LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you can try to look for me in Cecilia H.L. Tan. H.L. is, is my, sort of my Chinese name. Mm-hmm. I need to differentiate in case there are many Cecilia Tan out mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can also go to our website at www.cecilreed.com mm-hmm. uh, that you'll be able to get a whole lot of information. And also Cecilreed. Uh, homepage on LinkedIn. We are very active there. Uh, if you visit our homepage on LinkedIn, you will see all the videos that we post ah. uh, of our malls in action from China. Since we cannot bring you the malls, we bring you the videos to show you how they are performing. I love that. So your IRT is working overtime to make sure that it's not just quarterly reports or like by, by yeah yeah we by we, we, we we want to share really what's happening on the ground with mm. our uh, people here. Uh, because it's so far away and I, China being so big and some places people never even heard of. Mm, yes. <laughs> right? So uh, it's important that we demonstrate to you, you know, how the malls look like, yes. uh, you know, the kind of activities we run, the kind of tenants we have in the mall and many of them, uh, names are unheard of but very Is famous it? in China. And yeah. you mentioned that uh, in terms of geographies in like tier two cities, right? Yeah. So which ones would this? Okay, so right now our outlets are located in Chongqing. Mm. Uh, in fact, they have we have two outlets in Chongqing. One mm. in Liangjiang, which is in a city area, which is not far away from the airport. Mm. And the other is in Bishan. Okay, Bishan. Bishan. <laughs> Shout out to Bishan. <laughs> yeah. Or Bishan. Uh, yeah, it, it exactly. It sounded like the Bishan yes. in Singapore. Yes. And we have another one in Hefei mm. and another one in uh, Kunming. Yeah, so uh, very very nice places. Yeah, got it, got it. So yeah. I think I think I think I'm gonna check out the the LinkedIn page for Sassy as well. Yeah, but thank you so much. We'll include the links in the show notes so oh, that people great. can click through. Yes, and thank you so much, Cecilia, for being on. I think I also learned a lot from speaking to you. Yeah, I, I it's only twenty minutes, so I, I really try to sort of compactize this uh, for everyone's <laughs> benefit. Right. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcast at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on MeListen or Apple Podcasts, or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from MediaCorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu, with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.